Welcome to Leading in a Climate Changed World from Olivia Mythodrama. This incredible podcast sees Robin talk to Dr. Scylla Elworthy, peace builder and founder of the Oxford Research Group. Robin and Scylla discuss leadership around the subject of climate change and emerging examples of leadership from companies such as the CDP and individuals like Al Gore. They talk about the need for increased action and how important the school strikes have been to bring exposure to the topic. They talk about conscious misinformation and how there are seeds of doubt around studies and what we know. How do we separate what is true and whether there are subversive attempts to distract people from legitimate causes? Scylla talks about different industries shaping the future of sustainable business and how investment companies are moving money into positive commercial enterprises. She talks about being involved in the initiation of the Elders with Peter Gabriel, Richard Branson and Nelson Mandela. This organisation brings together a group of eminent leaders to offer a collective influence to support the shared interest of humanitarian subjects like climate change, healthcare and global equality. Scylla describes how leaders don't have to be good orators and how the presence and integrity of Greta Thunberg is reminiscent of Mandela. Robin and Scylla discuss the job description of a leader who can have a positive impact on a deeper level within their organisation and beyond. Before we go on to hear from Scylla and Robin, just a quick plug for our new website, leadinginaclimatechangedworld.com, where all our podcasts can be found. We intend to build on this space and have a lot more in store for the future. If you do have any questions, comments or feedback, please email hello at leadinginaclimatechangeworld.com or leave a comment on, on the website. And finally, please don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with everybody you know. We still have some amazing names lined up for future episodes and there's a lot more to come from this channel. Enjoy the podcast and over to Robin and Scylla. So welcome everybody to this podcast in our series Leading in a Climate Changed World. It's an enormous pleasure today to welcome Dr. Scylla Elworthy to talk with us. Scylla is a peace builder, and she's the founder of the Oxford Research Group, an NGO she set up in 1982 to develop effective dialogue between nuclear weapons policymakers worldwide and their critics. And she was nominated three times for the Nobel Peace Prize for that work. She served as its executive director from 1982 until 2003, when she left to set up Peace Direct a charity supporting local peace builders in conflict areas. From 2005, she was advisor to Peter Gabriel, Desmond Tutu, Richard Branson, and others in setting up the Elders, a kind of behind-the-scenes global influencing group. So there's also a member of the World Future Council, and in 2012, co-founded Rising Women, Rising World, a community of women on all continents who take responsibility for building a world that works for us all. Her latest book, and in fact, her latest venture, is called The Business Plan for Peace, Building a World Without War. And her TED Talk on nonviolence has been viewed by almost one and a half million people and still is currently working on developing an organization to deliver the, the aims and the goals of the business plan for peace. So, Scylla, you're extremely busy, very much a campaigner for all things good, and um, a great person, I think, to talk with us about leadership, and in particular, our focus, as you know, is about leadership and climate change. So I wonder, when you hear those two words together, leadership 
and climate change. I'm just wondering what the first associations are that you might make. Not enough. <laughs> right. Um, uh, I, I, I feel that uh, a lot of the words that recognized leaders have spoken are um, kind of the right thing to say, but they don't really carry weight in terms of matching actions. Um, partly because it's taken a long time for business to get the, um, to understand the urgency of this. But now um, business is very, I think very much more highly committed, largely thanks to initiatives like Carbon Tracker and um, Carbon Disclosure Project, which where there is real leadership. And of course, um, the leadership of Al Gore in making The Inconvenient Truth and the sequel. I mean, he's devoted his, his life since he was vice president, I think, to this subject. And, and one has to admire him for saying it like it is. Um, and now, of course, the leadership is coming from school children. And that is phenomenal and growing fast. And they are um, just taking time out of school to say we are so um, anxious about this and so um, emphatic in our demands that our leaders do what they need to do that we're going to take time out of school to, to say that. And many of their teachers support them, and I think quite rightly. Right. So not enough leadership, but some examples of where you see leadership emerging in both corporate levels and, and student groups and other places. And you also mentioned Al Gore, and it just kind of brought to mind a conversation I had with somebody a couple of days ago where they said, Oh, yes, the inconvenient truth. But various other people have challenged what he said, and this, the science doesn't really say that. So there's a lot of kind of conscious sowing of the seeds of doubt, often by the, the fossil fuel industry, so to, 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 to make it out that there's really two sides to the debate. I wonder how you see, also in your work around the peace work you've done and, and women's work, how you see or how we can really discern what is true at a time like this, because there's a lot of conscious misinformation being spread also yes um and that's why i think it's it, it's it's very important to listen to those who are actually measuring trends um and there are many more of them now i've mentioned a couple but um i, I think we can get reliable figures much more easily and the fossil fuel industry is in some cases not all beginning to realize that its profit margins and its success is going to be dependent on it taking real action itself. Um, and, um, and also where we're getting um, a huge amount of leverage is from the investment who are, you know, huge funds that are moving trillions of dollars about the world all the time have now many of them consciously realized that they can get better returns from renewable investment in renewables now. Um, and I think that's possibly behind the scenes that's the biggest change that we're seeing because it's where the, you know, the leverage is where the money is and where the investment is. And if the fossil fuel industry is seeing, as it 
blooming well ought to, that it's losing, it's, it's hemorrhaging support from the financial industry, then um, it will start to, um, to, to change its ways, which some of them have done, but others make glossy videos suggesting that they're thinking about it, they're actually doing nothing. Right. So it also leads me to a question about the kind of qualities of leaders that you admire at the moment. Like you also set up the elders, and I'm wondering also whether the elders are having a role around climate change. But I'm also wondering what type of qualities, so two questions in a way, one is particularly about the role of the elders, but one is about the qualities of leadership that you think is necessary to drive us forward at this point. Well, the... <clears throat> the Perhaps less obvious one is not, it's not so much argument and articulation, it's integrity. And um, the reason why working with the elders was so exciting, and I was only helping them um, set up for about three, three years, I'm not fully involved now, but um, one of the great um, privileges of that time was to be in the room with Nelson Mandela because, and I'll tell you why, um, on one occasion, he walked into the room leaning heavily on Peter Gabriel's arm. And it was Peter Gabriel's idea. Um, Peter saw that the world is now a global village, needs global elders to make wiser decisions. And Mandela sat down and started talking. It was a room full of about 60 people and I was, you know, very, quite, quite near to him. And um, when he started speaking, I got goosebumps. And he's not, um, he's not an orator. He doesn't, he doesn't make oratorial flourishes. Um, but he just spoke for 30 minutes. And at the end of the 30 minutes, I still had goosebumps. And I thought, what is, what is this? What's going on? It's never happened to me for more than a minute. <clears throat> and it took me a long time to realize that what I was getting viscerally was the energy of his integrity. So I could feel, as anybody could feel in that room, that here was a man, you could not push him around, you couldn't bribe him, you couldn't cajole him. When he believed in something as deeply as he did when he came out of jail, um, that was going to be his contribution, his, his truth. And so I think the biggest characteristic of leaders uh, who are standing for this issue is integrity. And you see exactly the same thing in young Greta Thunberg. She's only 17 or whatever. And when she speaks, you can see this is integrity. This is nobody selling a story or being over emotional it's totally clean and clear what she's saying so that's the the quality of leadership that we're looking for do you think that's something that can be developed oh yes and how would how would you this is maybe a bit of a big question but how would you go about developing integrity in leaders well <clears throat> You don't have to do what Mandela did, which is be sent to, to life sentence right. in Ireland. But in those 27 years, 
he honed with his colleagues um, the qualities that were almost the opposite of what he went in with because he went in as an active, well, he was the world's number one. He was Osama bin Laden in 1963. And <clears throat> what he learned from what worked in working with his jailers, with the warders, and with his colleagues was to become ever more straightforwardly honest, um, to... Um, not not to not to fight but to open a dialogue and that's what he always did and i think that's what i think that's what great leaders do um and anybody can learn it anybody anybody who's <clears throat> interested and um and magnetized by this question of integrity can develop it very quickly but it does require watchfulness and alertness and presence at every moment, especially when your integrity is challenged or required, required. Often we, we don't stand up and say anything because we're afraid to speak out. We're afraid of being ridiculed. Um, we're afraid we might lose our job. Um, and, and those are the moments to find the, the, the core presence um, that Thomas Hubel speaks about and many other teachers to develop that over, over time so that when you take your stand on something, you don't simply provoke argument because the brain is not going to get us anywhere on this, but you enable people to move from the, the mind to the heart, to the belly, where real communication happens. Right. And I imagine to develop integrity, we also want to create feedback systems that help us stay kind of true to what we're espousing. Yes, exactly. Um, feedback from, from our colleagues and even those that we might be in disagreement with. Because if you're having, a, say, an argument with somebody on an issue of global warming and it doesn't go the right way, it's always worth saying at the end of it to the other person, what was it that I said that didn't reach you? Um, and, um, you know, was, how could I be more articulate and more um, open and transparent on these issues? Yeah, beautiful. So there's also a degree of humility in that. Mm. And, and you mentioned Thomas Hubel earlier, and he talks about, about, the connected no. So we want to say no to some things. Maybe now we want to say no to fossil fuels, let's say, but can we say no that's still connected so we're still in relationship? And I imagine you have a lot of experience of that in your work in, in various places. The, the, the peace work that you do must have a lot of practice around the connected no in a way. Absolutely. It's fundamental. And, and thank you for reminding me of that phrase of Thomas. I'm just going to write it down because it's lovely. Um, and with the... With the nuclear weapons policymakers, when uh, we'd done the four years research to find out who they were in all the then five nuclear nations, and we wanted to get them to meet each other, and none of them would agree to do that. And it was because they sensed our, my anger and um, fear about the whole nuclear issue. And so I had to deal with that 
really address it through meditation, through all sorts of um, very, very demanding um, processes. But only when I had transformed that, so I wasn't angry with them um, as individuals, I, was, I could remain angry with, about what they did. But I, I, it was only when I was coming from a place of connection to them as human beings, although I might not support what they did. And that, that, was, that was a vital turning point. And then they started to agree to come to these meetings, which were all below the radar. There were no press, no communiques, nothing. That's why you never heard about them. But they went on from 1988 until, well, they're still going on. I mean, I handed over the organization in 2003, and it's now absolutely flourishing. It's called the Oxford Research Group. Still doing the same kind of work. Right, so I feel like we're starting to get together a little bit of a job description <laughs> for the kind of leadership that we need at the moment. We've talked about integrity, humility, the connected no. I'm wondering also about the place for vision. Like, like is it important to have like a big long-term vision or is it more like step-by-step step and the path will unfold itself? Like when you've done the, the, all the different campaigning work that you've been involved in, how important a, a place does vision hold? For me, fundamental, it might not be true for other people, but um, my great mentor, who was a, a nuclear, he was the only nuclear physicist who refused to continue working on the Manhattan Project to develop the first American nuclear weapon. His name was Professor Sir Joseph Rotblat. And he said to me, the future belongs to those who can see it. So vision is absolutely vital that you can picture and hold in your heart and your mind the way that the future could be, how it could be. And so in terms of climate change or global warming, you would uh, envisage a world in which um, we had turned around or the nature had helped us turn around the appalling situation we've got ourselves into. And then you picture thing, you know, the coastline becoming safe again. In other words, not inundating all our major cities that are on the coasts. And you picture humans living um, in, in concert with nature, in hand in hand with nature, instead of regarding nature as something to be fought with, which is what we do now. And the role that that, so that's, that's a place for our imagination and our vision to, to consciously hold that in our awareness and energetically that starts to draw something or how does it work then, the, the, the idea of really consciously working with vision? Ooh, good question, Robin. Um, uh, I think it, it sort of uh, enters your being. Um, and it, uh, if we have a, a vision of a safer world, we can uh, sort of in, inhabit it in our bodies. I think it's quite a bodily issue to not just have an idea in the mind, but let it be in the heart and the gut. And then, and, and crucially, of course, to spend time 
uh, with nature, not just admiring it, but actually working with it. That's why, in my view, every child could learn to grow vegetables. Children love growing vegetables. They love the whole process of planting seeds and seeing them come up. And, and it's that that I learned at my mother's, um, you know, at, at her knees, really. I mean, uh, she used to kneel while she was planting things in her garden. And at age three, I was kneeling beside her and watching every move to the extent that, you know, I, I, I learned it in my being and loved it. And now when I get tired and worn out and um, sometimes a bit despairing, the first place I go is my allotment and, um, and grow something or help it to grow. I don't grow it. It grows and I help it. Yeah, it's beautiful. So it's so another part of the job description in a way is that a leader needs to have an inner practice that helps them re retain a sense of balance and calm, even in the face of crises. There needs to be an inner, inner discipline also. Yes, and, and humor. Because as you, um, if you live with some sort of a vision and the pure physical enjoyment of nature, I mean, right now, I don't know what it's like up in Fintorn, but right now the blossom trees are just awe striking in it you know they're so beautiful and everything's burgeoning into spring and we can um we can just absorb that in our being and it nourishes us um so um it's um it's it's a far more pleasurable way to live than in anxiety and fury and despair Right. I'm looking out of my window. I see the gorse is blooming here with this lovely coconut smell. It's absolutely delicious. I agree. So I'm also curious then, what are the forces, in a way like the forces that stand against it? We're getting a kind of good sense about this is the kind of leadership that we need. There's some examples that you've spoken of of where you see it manifesting. There's, of course, a lot of force that stands against it also. And I wonder how you, firstly, how you see them and feel them and how you work with what might feel like the enemy or the, the opposing forces that we also need to deal with. Mm, well, I, I don't work on um, global warming as such. I work on um, weaponry and war and conflict and how to prevent it. So... Um, my my whole approach now, and I think this is a recent realization for me, is that prevention is really it. Um, because, well, for obvious reasons, if you think about health and epidemics and inoculation and um, all the measures that the health profession has learned to isolate people who are infected and so on, and therefore stop the, the disease growing. Um, I, I think prevention is imperative in the field that I work in because it is not just 10 times cheaper, but it's 100 times more than that cheaper in every sphere to prevent armed conflict than it is to pick up the pieces afterwards because armed conflict um, 
injures families for three generations and nations for three generations once it's happened once it's broken out um and people sometimes in some areas um people have held held the wounds of war for 700 years so <clears throat> it's it's very much um very much more effective to prevent than to try and mop up and the same applies to climate change and global warming we are close to the edge now close to the edge where if we don't all act now we may not be able to have a survivable human race in other words um there would if, if things go as is predicted if there is that amount of drought um, driving people from their homelands and where they can support themselves into ever more crowded urban centers where they can't be supported if there is cities and, and um, ports being flooded to the extent that uh, it, it's literally unimaginable numbers of people from coastal cities that will have to move uh, we can't build flood defences to keep out a two-metre rise in, in sea levels. So we're just at that turning point now where it's us that have to act. It's really... Um, and, and the younger generation is so ready for that, much more so than I would have thought. I would have thought they would just be blaming and furious with us for leaving them such a, a world... But actually, no, they're very, very geared up, very motivated and very imaginative with the new technology at their fingertips to do this. So it's not lost, but we're very, very close to the edge. Right. And I was working about a month or so ago with a, an energy company and they had a big vision to lead the energy transition and the, the CEO was speaking very passionately about the need to transition into renewables and help people reduce their energy consumption. And then I was also talking to people who are running you know, coal plants and oil refineries and saying, yeah, but all the profit and all the money is still here. So we're just going to carry on doing what we're doing until somebody really tells us that we can't. So what would you, what, I'm wondering what, how the, the messages that you're talking about and the awareness that you're talking about can filter down through large organizations and, and through, through the, 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 the lenses that say we just have to maximize our profits right now. Yes. That's, our, that's our fiduciary duty. We have a duty to our shareholders to do that. And we understand there's all this other stuff going on, but it's really nothing to do with me. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I think there's two things. One would be to... Um, Build a campaign, which could be fairly simple to do with good good video, to uh, educate those fossilized leaders uh, of companies that are still, as you say, putting their heads in the sand, of the shame that they will they and their companies will be held in for not acting now. Um, and if, if, for example, a band of students were to um, asked to obtain a meeting with the people you've been talking to, or maybe you could be the conduit for that, um, 
if they were to arrive in the in the boardroom of those companies and say, listen, you know what you could do now. You do know what you could do. And if you don't do it, you will be pilloried for generations. Your non-action, you personally and your board. And we want you to know that. And that is, a, ooh, you know, it gives, the sh- it gives the shivers. And young people saying that with the connected no, as you suggest, you could train them to do that would be amazing. Um, so, um, uh, and it would be quite hard, I think, for a chairman of such a company to refuse audience to a group of 10 students, peaceful 10 students, because you would immediately send out on social media that this had happened, that he had refused to meet them. But I do believe that it's wonderful that they're striking from school, but there's a lot further they could go, a lot further, with the intermediary help of people like you and others who know both sides. I know that the Carbon Disclosure Project people, um, Paul Dickinson and others, would I'm sure they would be very willing to make that introduction if the students got hold of them. So students could get hold of Carbon Disclosure or you or Findhorn or all the other wonderful organisations that now exist and say, would you please make an appointment for us to see the um, chairman or even the board of ExxonMobil or whatever it is. Well, that's a great idea. I'm very excited at <laughs> the prospect of that. So the, the, the extra mile that you think that kind of leadership that the, the, the students and the pupils are exhibiting at the moment, that extra mile would basically take them into the boardrooms and into the corporates that, that need to hear that message. And in a way, I think what you're talking about is what I sometimes talk about as, as engineering aha moments for people, like these kind of wake-up calls to say, oh, we better do something different. Yes, I think, I think um, especially if the students were coached and supported in their message, and they're so eloquent already, they just need to get the... the, the tone right so it's not attacking um, but saying very clearly our generation are now holding you responsible yeah and you talked about sorry go on and they could also say if we don't see change substantial change in your company policy in a year's time watch out right and you talked about, you have a smile on your face as you say that, when you, you talked about shame earlier, do you think, do you, in your experiences, is shame a motivator? Um, it, only in extremists. And I think with some of these fossil fuel companies, we are in extremists. They've not listened. They know the stuff. They've been telephoned by heads of state. God knows what. Um, they are in denial. And... Uh, I, I believe it's time to to use our very best skills now. And um, let's try it out. Let's see if shame works. Mm-hmm. It's not my favorite by any means, but um, it, we are at a terrible tipping point now. Right. And I'm wondering if, so, if you have some guidance around how to help 
people in say multi-sector dialogues because i think that's another place where some of these aha moments can happen where you get a an ngo talking to the government talking to a corporation talking to civil society talking to the un like these different stakeholders coming together who all have a stake in the future of our planet but i imagine also a lot of defensiveness in those places and what have you learned over the many years you've been working in this field I'm not talking about the climate change field, but the field of bringing together disparate groups. What helps to dismantle some of that defensiveness so that you can actually have an open-hearted conversation? <clears throat> well, what, what we did, I'm not saying it's the, it, it, it's the recipe, but what we did was to, um, first of all, write very well-informed letters to them and and say that we would like to come and meet them before we persuaded them to come and meet their opposite numbers from other countries. So <clears throat> what one could imagine would be um, a very well-informed letter going to the operative people who, whose minds we would like to, and hearts we would like to evolve um, in, in very unaggressive language and then meeting them so they got the feel of each other um, and then saying would you now come and meet with um, whoever it was in the in, in the leading um, global warming climate change um, advocacy field so you would um, enable a to, and it, this has to be way below the radar this one because people will only come to meet their enemies or their challengers if they know the press isn't going to be there. So you have to start below the radar, um, which is what we did very strictly. No communiques, utterly deniable meetings, and um, people well informed about what they were coming to. And then we had the meetings in a Quaker retreat centre, outside Oxford, that's where we started. And we invited Chinese, Russians, Americans, British and French. Um, and at first they were very, very nervous and anxious and stiff. And then gradually, because we did home cooked food, we, we did everything to make the environment safe and kind. And over, over the first day people began to relax. And then the second day they were kind of taking off their jackets and leaning forward and really talking to each other. Um, and so it was, again, carrying the vision, if you like, that it is possible for those opposing forces to get together and make a sensible plan, that the other isn't the the ogre or the beast or the or the devil right and was this also the place where you had people meditating underneath yes because i think that's a great story that because it's also about how you create the the physical environment on lots of different levels of subtlety that supports the emerging conversations well <clears throat> i was um i i was uh inspired by another great mentor, Professor Adam Curl, who was the professor of peace studies at Bradford, the first one. And he came with us to China and he taught me about the power of meditation in a very unobtrusive way. 
And he just said, you know, you need a daily practice where you, you sit quietly and you breathe deeply and you watch what you're up to, you watch what your mind's doing and gradually you calm your inner self. So when we had this one first meeting that didn't go very well, I said to Adam, what can we do? And, and suddenly the idea occurred to both of us that we could have five meditators sitting underneath the room where the um, official delegates were to be sitting. So there was a first floor, beautiful, large room, beamed and ancient. And then underneath was a library. And so Adam and four of his colleagues um, sat there like standing stones. We saw them as standing stones. And they meditated all day while we were meeting in the room above. And on the second day, a man from the State Department came to me and he said, Silla, this is a very special room, talking about this first floor room. And I said, yeah, it was built in 1360. It's very ancient. And he said, no, 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 it's very special. And I said, yes, well, people have been doing yoga in this room and talking to each other for many years. And he said, no, there's something coming up through the floorboards. And I said, oh, yeah, there is. Um, do you want to know what it is? And he said, yeah. And so I told him, and he went white. And, um, <laughs> and so I said, well, if you don't believe me, ask those older people who serve you your lunch. It's them who are doing it. And he, he frowned, and off he went to lunch. And he came back from lunch, and he looked at me and went, um, and he got it. Um, so he could feel it. Um, and what that support was doing was working on a, another level of consciousness to induce the kind of confidence and uh, peace, peaceful communication, dialogue, dialogue that we're after. Um, because you can only really get things shifting fast when the people being, in quotes, accused are in dialogue with the people who uh, are angry with them or fearful or, or want to change them. And the dialogue means that we, we move from here, which is I'm right and you're wrong, to the heart, which says, oh my goodness, is that what it's like for you? And we begin to understand one another in that way. Mm. And that applies to any argument, any argument at all. Yeah, lovely. It's always great talking with you. We could talk for a long, longer, but I know we're kind of coming close to, to the end of our time probably. But I wonder, maybe we could just close by going back to something we touched on earlier, which is about the role of the elders, because not so many people even know that they exist and, and I think it's a very interesting kind of model of leadership, if you like, because it's very kind of behind the scenes. And maybe you could just, for people who don't have any understanding of what they are or who they are and kind of what they, how they work, maybe you could just outline a little bit what how they work, because it's a, it's a hidden leadership, in a, if you like, that's, that's having impact, but people are not so aware of it. Yeah, I think they're, they're very keen to be less hidden now. Um, <clears throat> when, when they started... They, um, they weren't quite clear at the beginning because basically they were 12 people chosen ultimately 
by Nelson Mandela from a list of 300 biographies that I assembled. And um, we had great difficulty getting gender balance into it. That was always difficult because um, Richard Branson particularly loved high profile names. And Peter Gabriel, who was also one of the founders, really wanted to have a global election for the elders. So in the, in the end, Mandela made the decisions. And um, I think we had five women and seven men at the beginning. And that was... Could you just name a few for people who are not so familiar with the composition of the group? Oh, well, this was at the beginning. Desmond Tutu was the chair. And, he w and Kofi Annan was one of the members. And then Kofi Annan took over as the chair. And uh, and then, as you know, he, he passed away. And now Mary Robinson, who was also one of the original elders, is the chair. Um, they, uh, um, at my encouragement, <clears throat> include people from as many cultures as possible. Um, and therefore, it's moved from very high-profile people, um, <clears throat> like, um, uh, I think, actually, I think Jimmy Carter is still an elder, but he was certainly one of the original ones. Um, and various ex-presidents, but my particular joy was when um, the head of the biggest trade union in the world, the self-employed women workers of India, was uh, um, invited to become an elder, a very wise, wise woman. So. <clears throat> there they are, they meet probably two or three times a year and they go on missions which are the personal passion of one or other of them. So they've been to the Middle East, they've been, uh, Kofi Annan organised a lot of work on Darfur and, South, and Sudan in the days when the terrible Darfur massacres were happening. Um, so they've had a hand in defusing conflict in many, many countries, but they don't, <coughs> excuse me, they, they don't take credit for it. And they're quite right. Um, because it's, excuse me, <coughs> it's usually the efforts of local people which finally make the difference. And the elders would not dream of um, taking the credit when other people had done all the legwork. And uh, they, they often come to just bring a, a bit of international attention to a particular issue. And um, they've, they're doing a lot on um, girls' education and trying to prevent um, early marriage of girls in, in different cultures around the world, which is a terribly touchy subject. So they, they're not at all averse to tackling the most difficult issues that there are. Wonderful. And do you know whether they are actively involved in climate change conversations? They certainly have been. Um, I think it would be worth, they've got a very, very vibrant website. So I'd encourage everybody to have a look. Um, they certainly have been <clears throat> very active on climate change and Desmond Tutu is often speaking about it. Um, but I'm not absolutely familiar with what they're doing right now. 
Right. Well, that's something for us to look into further, I think. But that's great. So, and thank you so much. I think we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up here. But thank you so much. It's, it's always a pleasure. And it's great just to feel the depth of experience and wisdom that you bring and this compassionate heart that you have. And thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Thank um, you. Every success in, in your ventures and building the business plan for peace. May it flourish long into the future. I hope so too, Robin. And thanks for organizing this series. It's great. <laughs>